0: Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We're working our way through the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, which is our statement of faith. Uh, So basically we're going through what are the primary doctrines of Christian faith. We try to touch on a lot of the, uh, I guess you'd say secondary doctrines, not primary doctrines that uh, make up our faith as well as we work through these different chapters and different subjects. Uh, We are in Chapter 5, which is of divine providence, and that's what we're working our way through right now. And this, par- this uh, chapter is one of the larger ones as far as paragraphs go. Uh, there are seven paragraphs in this chapter. And so we've been working our way through these uh, different paragraphs. And we, are, we actually last week um, started paragraph two. And uh, in fact, I want to go back a couple of slides here because I want to look at uh, R.C. Sproul's quote again because the R.C. Sproul's quote is great because, the, and first of all, he's more astute than I am, so <laughs> His words speak better than mine do. But he's kind of summed it up in a good way. And it's a, it's a, it's a challenging thing for us to think about. Of course, this is R.C. Sproul, right? So no matter who we quote, if it's not scripture, it's not scripture. Are you with me on this? So it's not like R.C. Sproul, we're saying, well, he, his words are divine. They're not. Neither are Calvin's, neither are Luther's, neither are anybody's. Just God's word, right? We're, we're with together on that. So let's see how he described this. The doctrine of the providence of God leaves no room for fate, blind or otherwise God is not blind he neither is he capricious for him there are no accidents with God there are no cases of chance events if chance exists God cannot exist if one molecule flies flies wild by chance then God is not sovereign if God is not sovereign then God is not God God and chance simply cannot exist Accidents are events we do not intend to take place. But notice, let me just pause there. Accidents are events we do not intend to take place. But there is another intentionality that transcends our intentionality. The intentions of God, as seen in the concurrence between the intents of Joseph's brothers and the intent of God, are never subject to chance or fate. Chance is a repugnant term to ascribe to the actions of God. Albert Einstein was correct when he stated God doesn't roll dice. So this, this, in essence, kind of sums up God's providence. You cannot believe that some things just happen by chance. To do so would be to say that God isn't in control of them. Does that make sense? And that's essentially what Sproul is saying. He's saying, look, if God is in control, then he's in control. We can't say, well, you know, God's in control of this, but he's not in control of that. Well, then he's not God. Does that make sense? And a lot of times, unfortunately, this is taught. Like, there's big picture, little picture. Have you heard that before? Or big circle, little circle. Have you heard that before? In other words, God is in control of the big picture, but the small picture, well, he just lets that go along and every once in a while makes a course correction to make sure the big picture is fulfilled. That's unscriptural. That's unscriptural. We see so many examples of this, and we've looked at a few of them in the scriptures here, but you can think through some examples of this, right? Remember when Christ talks to the apostles and he talks about for them not to worry about how they're going to get clothed or how they're going to get fed before he sends them out? And what does he say? He says, think of the birds, right? They don't gather before the winter, and yet God provides for them. And if he cares for a bird, how much more does he care for you? true? Totally makes sense. Except we never think about the first part. God actually provides for the birds. He doesn't just leave that to chance. He doesn't leave that to just happen the way it happens. He is the one who is providing for them. Interesting. Interesting. All right. So, here's where we left off. We're starting with, first we had uh, as part of paragraph two, we had a concession, and now we have an assertion. So, This is the phrase, it's the second half of paragraph 2. So paragraph 2, part 1 was a concession, and paragraph 2, part 2 is an assertion. So here's the rest of the paragraph. Yet by the same providence, he ordered them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Let me read the first part of paragraph 2 so you can see the contrast, all right? "...although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, so that there is not anything befalls any by chance or without his providence. Yet by the same providence he ordered them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently." So what is this saying? God uses second causes or indirect things to help fulfill his decrees. So think about this for a second. God can miraculously intervene and cause something to happen according to his plan, right? So God can bring something, boom, this happens, and so because this happens, now his decree is fulfilled. But for everything to be part of the providence of God, either one of two things have to happen. Either he interacts on everything, which means that he actually intervenes miraculously on every single part of existence, in everything that happens, in every molecule at all the time, or he intervenes in some things that need miraculous intervention, and the rest of the time he allows that which he's already ordained to happen so that those things will occur. So you're going, okay, I heard what you said, but I'm not sure what you were meaning. Okay, good, because I'm going to explain it. Sometimes... So this is talking about indirect things. Sometimes these things can seem inconsequential to us, but they are all within God's plan and are part of fulfilling his will. So I don't know how ridiculously silly I can make this, but let's say that it is uh, when the rain falls, when there's frost on your windshield, right? When uh, your nose runs. When you blink. Now, you think, what are you you talking about here? How is that part of God's will? Well, this is the very point. Is that there are so many small things that occur that seem inconsequential to us, but in fact, they do impact what happens. Right? So, how about a sneeze? Have you ever sneezed? (laughs) Yes, you've sneezed. Have you ever sneezed while you're coming up to a light... That's turning red. Ooh. Now it starts to get dicey, doesn't it? What do we mean when we say dicey? We're talking about by chance. No. You sneeze, you may not see the light turning. Could be in an accident as a result of the sneeze. The guy in front of you could have braked hard, and you sneezed, you didn't see it, you look up, the car stopped, you hit him. Now, the sneeze seems inconsequential, right, until that happens. Then it's not so inconsequential anymore. Now it's a pretty big deal. But this is true all the time. This is true all the time. So if you think about anything that happens in your life that seems like it's a big thing, it's not standalone usually, is it? Usually there's other things that lead up to that. There's other things that are part of that. You're at a certain place at a certain time. You're having a conversation with a certain person at a certain time that you didn't plan, you didn't think it was a big deal, and yet something comes out of that that is a big deal. Maybe your opinion on something shifted because you just happened to ask somebody something and they gave you an answer and, wow, you didn't think about that before. And now you're thinking about that. See this? This is the way... This is the way inconsequential things seem to be inconsequential to us, but yet to God, they are part of the secondary causes. They're part of the secondary causes. Here's Jonathan Edwards. Here's what he said about it, which is, again, another great quote to understand this concept. It extends not only to things which we may think of as of great moments. He's talking about the difference here between those those first causes and secondary causes and therefore worthy of notice, but to things the most indifferent and inconsiderable. It extends not only to things beneficial and salutary, or to the direction and assistance of those who are the servants of the living God, but to things seemingly most hurtful and destructive, and to persons the most refractory and disobedient. He overrules all his creatures and all their actions. I am to point out to you in some particulars how the wrath of man praises God. I say, in in some instances, because it is far from being in my power either to mention or explain the whole, there is an unsearchable depth in the divine counsels which it is impossible for us to penetrate. You know what he's saying? There's no way for us actually to get our minds wrapped around this concept that God is actually controlling everything, the big things that we recognize as big things, but all of the small things. All of the secondary causes that seem inconsiderable, they don't seem like they're a big deal to us. They're inconsequential. And yet God is in control of those things. And you think, well, okay, I can can accept that. Well, realize it also extends to the unbeliever. Now it starts to get a little bit uh, unnerving. What does that mean? See, it's really easy for us to accept this doctrine when we think about ourselves. And we think about God controlling how our lives go, our church goes, our family goes, our nation goes, our state goes. But if God is truly in control of everything, that means that the most ruthless sinner you can think of is doing exactly what God wants him to do. exactly what God wants him to do. Is he in control of the believers and not the unbelievers? We don't believe that. Right? But somehow, that's the way we think about it, isn't it? Hmm. There's three classifications of second causes that are given in the confession. Three classifications of second causes. One is necessarily... So this is God's creation, acts within the laws that God has established for it. That mechanism, under God's control, is designed and required to operate a certain way. God uses those things that must be out of necessity perform their created purpose to accomplish his will. So the first type of second cause, the first classification, is necessarily... So when this confession talks about necessarily what it's talking about is creation and things in creation that God has established and ordained and made them to work this way, they do continue to work this way. Like, what's the most simple one you can think of right off the bat? What? Gravity. Good one. Gravity. Do we need gravity to accomplish God's will? We do. We do need gravity to accomplish God's will, right? So did God build this into creation? He did. He did build this into creation. So part of his plan is that which he's built. Does God have to hold us all on the earth all the time? Do you see the point? No. He created earth with gravity, and that gravity continues to operate the way he designed it for as long as he wills it to happen, and that is what holds us on the planet. Could have made it harder, we couldn't walk. Could have made it lighter, we float away, right? Gravity, natural process, natural process. Freely. His intelligent creatures act freely with liberty, but God influences and governs the heart. So the Confession talks about necessarily, then it goes to freely. His intelligent creatures, which are who? People. Act freely with liberty, but God influences and governs their heart. So let me ask you a question. Does free will mean that you get to do whatever you want to and God has no control? It does not mean that. It does not mean that. Why? Would he be God? If you had free will without any control by God whatsoever, would God be God? Could his plans then be thwarted? They could, at least for you, right, if that was true. At least for you. Now you might say, well, his bigger picture plan, let's say Christ dying on the cross, couldn't have been thwarted if Herod was actually a devout believer. Okay, except that there's no way that could have happened because God was in control. The fact of the matter is, Herod could not become a devout believer. Why? Because God's intention and his will was that Herod would not be so that he would fulfill his plan with Christ. How does that jive with free will? Difficult. Difficult. We'll break that down a little bit. We actually have a chapter about that, so we're not going to get too far into it today. That'll probably be a one Sunday wonder that we'll do next year. All right. Contingently, so necessarily, freely, contingently, a second cause that is dependent on another cause. Many causes of their nature cause other things to occur. Sinful actions of men, actions God did not author or approve, also act as second causes. To accomplish God's will. This is more than a possibility. It was foreordained by God that it should happen, either by his grace or withholding of it. So what are we saying here? We're saying that things that happen as a result of other things are part of what's built into God's plan. They're contingency, contingently related. So what are we talking about here? We see we have got an example, right? Sinful actions of men, actions that God did not author or approve. Look, if God tells man not to murder and a man murders, did God make him murder? No. But was God in control and allowed that to happen? And actually planned that that was going to happen? Because of his heart. Very difficult. Very difficult. It doesn't change the truth. It doesn't change the truth. Now we, of course, are under this, we believe there is much more free will than the scriptures tell us. Now, we can see case after case in the scripture of God specifically controlling men's hearts so they do what his will was. Now, most of them that we see, we think of it as big picture things, right? Almost like a first cause, not a second cause. So, for instance, did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes, scripture tells us that directly, right? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. If God had not hardened Pharaoh's heart, then the the nation of Israel may not have... Had to had to be uh, released as from being slaves without the plagues, right? It might not have taken all the plagues. In fact, we see in the scripture the reference that after the first time that Moses comes, the Bible tells us that then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Moses comes, says to let this let God says let my people go, and the Bible says Pharaoh's heart was hardened was hardened. Now that is going to mean, in a we see through the scripture, that now every time there's another plague, he further rejects it, right? Until finally, the last plague, angel of death, people wiped out, firstborn of every household, then he finally relents. Is he then he's happy and he's a believer? No. He chases them. Remember this? He chases them to the Red Sea, destroyed in the Red Sea. Pharaoh's armies but we know that that happens right in the womb he loved jacob hated esau in the womb before they're born before they were born jacob have i loved esau have i hated wow part of the plan esau was not going to become the chosen one why god's plan god's plan Now, see, it's easy for us to ascribe that that happens for these big things, right? And then somehow think that it doesn't happen for little things. So, did Pharaoh have free will? Hmm. This is why we have an entire chapter on this in the confession. Did Pharaoh have a free will? Well, the scripture says that all men do. All men. So if Pharaoh had a free will, but God hardened his heart, Pharaoh's free will was not going to make the right decision, was it? He was going to make the wrong decision. See, God influences men's heart. He can give them grace. He can withhold his grace. This influences us. We are compelled to act in accordance with it. This is the distinction between providence and free will. Not an easy concept to accept. Not an easy concept. This is why Edwards says, there's an unsearchable depth in the divine counsels which is impossible for us to penetrate. It's hard for us to understand how this works completely. So what we have to do is accept that God's word says that this is how it works. It's beyond us. You could say it's an, a divine mystery, right? Something that's beyond our understanding. R.C. Sproul put it this way. We could surmise that if the baby had not cried, there would, not, there would be, have been no Moses, right? Had there been no Moses, there would have been no incident at the burning bush. No burning bush, no exodus. No exodus, no giving of the law at Sinai. No law, no no prophets. No prophets, no Jesus. No Jesus, no cross. No cross, no redemption. No redemption, no Christianity, no Christianity, no Western civilization as we know it. But there is no what if in God. It goes back to the baby. The baby cried. Pharaoh's daughter heard the baby. Took him out of the river from among the bulrushes, right? What if the baby hadn't cried? More than likely, the baby would have got eaten by alligators. There's alligators in the Nile. Didn't. Didn't. Are we saying that the baby cry was God's control? That's what we're saying. That's what we're saying. But obviously, we don't see that as a primary cause, do we? We see it as a secondary cause. Even that, is just, it's so minor. Do babies cry? Yes. Do they cry when they're not with their mothers? More. Do they cry when they're not with their dads? Less. Do they cry? <laughs> it's true. It's just true. Do they, do they cry when they're uncomfortable? Yes. So this baby is put in this dark basket, probably dark. Probably had a lid to keep the water from sloshing on the baby. Probably. Do we know that for sure? No, we don't. You can picture it, though. Probably true, right? Even if there's not a cover, the baby's floating on the water. The Nile is not smooth. Floating on the water. Probably bobbing a little bit. Uncertain. No mama. Natural for the baby to cry. Hmm? Natural. But had to cry in the right spot for Pharaoh's daughter to hear it. The daughter of Pharaoh, I should say, to hear it. Let's look at a couple of verses that show this. Genesis eight twenty two. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Now what are we talking about? This We're talking about the necessarily second causes. In other words, while there is an earth, there will be day and night. There will be seasons. There will be these different things that God built into creation. Genesis 8 is just saying it again. Acts 2.23, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Who's Peter talking about? Christ. He's talking about Christ. This is the passage, one of the passages that Branson work, was working on on Wednesday nights. Basically, the determinant, counsel, and foreknowledge of God is the key. Who took them? The Jews. Ye have taken that's what That's what Peter's talking about. He's talking about ye have taken them, but he's talking about the determinant, counsel, and foreknowledge of God. It wasn't just you made the decision, so it happened. God planned for it to happen. God planned for it to happen. All right. A qualification. Paragraph 3. God, in his ordinary providence, makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. Okay. God, in his ordinary providence, makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. So first of all, God uses means, or normal methods, to accomplish his will, but God is free to use supernatural things as part of his providence. So in other words... This paragraph is just saying that his ordinary providence, in other words, let's say the day and night, seasons, right, all these things, God uses those, but he is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasures. In other words, he does not have to follow those rules. He's God. Does anyone remember when the sun stopped in the middle of the day? When did it stop? Joshua, and what were they doing? In the battle, in a battle, and the sun stopped. Remember this? Does anybody remember how long? There was a time, that's right, and it was hours long. It wasn't a few minutes, what was it? Whole day? There you go. 24 hours. If that's accurate, it's God's word. 24 hours. Is that possible? Is that possible? That's right. We can't explain it, can we? There's no science that could explain that being true. Is there? There's no way. There's no way that the normal methods that God would use would accomplish his will that day. You see? No way. Does water turn to blood at some point? Normally. It does not. Does water turn to wine at some point? No. The only thing you can think of that water turns to is Ice, steam, vapor, that's about it, right? We don't see water turning to anything else. And yet, we see examples in Scripture where water became something it was not. These are cases where God is acting without, above, or against them in his pleasure. He is going against the normal process. And, of course, this should be almost be like a no-brainer, right? Can God act outside of his natural creation's order to fulfill his will? Of course he can. And we see lots of examples of that happening in Scripture, some more shocking than others. The sun for a day, not setting? Okay, let's just blow our minds for a second. Because it's easy to think about, well, if they were at the North Pole and it was in the summer, then the sun would have never set. It would just have gone around the horizon and they would have had the sun the whole time. Totally true. They weren't at the North Pole. They weren't at the North Pole. Now, you understand that the earth rotates, right? And the rotation of the earth is how the sun moves across the sky and how, this is, we all know this, right? And the moon, of course, rotates around the earth and so that's why we see the moon at different times, sometimes during the day, can't see it as easily, sometimes at night. This, we all know that. Now, Science says, I'm going to throw one out here. I'm going to give you a little noodle cooker. Science says that gravity works because of the Earth's rotation. Have you heard that? I mean, if you went to school, you did hear that. That the reason that we don't fly off the Earth is because of the rotation of the Earth. That is what creates gravity, and that gravity is what actually holds us to the Earth and keeps us from flying off into space. So if that's true, how does God stop the rotation of the earth so that the sun continues to shine without everyone flying off the earth? Hmm. That actually brings into question, what causes gravity? How could that have happened? Hmm. Good question. Do we dwell on that? No. We just accept that this happened, but it just shows that God's power caused this to happen. I mean, obviously, the sun did not move in the universe, or did it? I mean, did the earth keep rotating and the sun moved, and then God put it back? Could that have happened? (laughs) Does God have the power to do it? He does. But that is not a normal process, agreed? Not a normal process. It's outside of the ordinary providence that he uses, right? Now, what would be an example of the ordinary process that he uses? Like, where do we see, there's like tons of places, but where can you think of that the natural order of creation, that the way that the earth operates, let's just say that, the way that the earth operates, caused part of God's plan to come to be? Like, that it happened because that was the way that God built it into Creation. Can you think of any examples? I mean, just don't have to. I'm not looking for one. I'll come up with some if you don't. Any examples? Sunrise and sunset. Okay, well, let's go with that one since so nobody else said anything. Sunrise and sunset. All right, so sunrise and sunset. Do we see examples in the scripture where battles ended or started based on sunrise and sunset? We do. Do we see battles in which the nation of Israel, when they're coming into the promised land, went in and attacked another group of people at night? We do. Now, what happened? They were surprised. Remember this? Can you think of any example of that particularly happened at night? And they were surprised? Just what's the story? Gideon. What what did they do? They had a light in what? In a jar, a vessel, pot, whatever you want to say. And... They busted them open, revealed the lights, blew the trumpets, right? had it surrounded, caused confusion in the camp. They started killing each other. Now, this only happens because it's at night, right? So part of God's plan in this case was using the natural order of creation that included night, right? That included night. Lots and lots of examples you can think of in Scripture where this happens, right? Was God's plan that the apostles, the disciples, would be falling asleep when Christ prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Part of his plan. Would that have happened if it was daytime? Probably not. Right? Probably not. Natural. Natural creation. God uses part of it to fulfill his will. Part of it. Jonah. Watching Nineveh, waiting for destruction. God causes a big plant, bush, to grow, to give him shade. He's still unhappy. It shrivels. He's still unhappy. So it's in the sun. The plant shrivels. Could the sun cause the plant to shrivel? Yes, the sun could cause the plant to shrivel. How about the whale? Throwing him up. Now, would that be normal for the whale to throw Jonah up? Or would normally he hold the, whale, the man in his stomach? Well, that's a very interesting question. Depends on the whale. Because some whales, they found, will not hold that large of a thing in their stomach. They're used to eating very small things, plankton other things. They're used to eating other things, and so if they were to ingest something like that, their stomach would eventually cause them to throw it up. Could God have just used natural creation there by the which whale was going to swallow Jonah? Sure. Absolutely. That's throughout the scriptures. You see it all over the place. We don't even pay attention to it because it's just normal. right? We just expect that that's okay. Sure. Well, yeah, that's believable. It's the supernatural things we usually pay attention to, right? Rightfully so, right? They douse the altar in water, and yet lightning lights it on fire. Supernatural, right? They douse it in oil, call for lightning from the, uh, the false gods, Nothing happens. That's actually natural creation. Right? Like, lightning just doesn't come whenever you call for it. We wouldn't need matches if that was the case. Right? You see what I mean? That's not, not really true, because a lot more power in lightning. Anyway. All right. Miracles are God working without, above, or against ordinary means. Like we just covered that. All right. Without means... Are when God acts completely above and beyond second causes to perform His will. He, mirac- he miraculously intervenes to cause His first cause to come pass. In the virgin birth of Christ, God worked without means of sexual relations as the means of conception. Just makes sense. So there was no man and woman to cause the conception to occur. He acted above creation. Now notice that then. The normal process of creation continues. The mother is now impregnated. She carries the baby to at least close to term. We don't know for sure, you know, exactly, but close to term anyway. She delivers the baby. Normal process. Normal process, right? Is the baby born an adult? No, it's a baby, it's an infant. And then the baby grows over the years, right? Natural process. You see what I'm saying? Natural process. God uses those. Above means that God uses second causes, but causes them to work beyond ordinary operation. And Abraham and Sarah, too old to conceive, God causes Sarah to conceive despite her dead womb. Did God impregnate Sarah? No. No. Abraham did. Abraham did. use the normal process, except... He had to give Sarah a boost, right? Cause her womb, which was dead, to actually produce an egg, right? Cause that to happen. So he caused her natural processes to actually work where they wouldn't have normally worked. And then she becomes pregnant. Same with Elizabeth. Against them means God sometimes contradicts or works against the ordinary means to perform his will. For example, God went against the normal operation of the sea when Moses parted it for the children of Israel to cross it. So what's the normal operation of the sea? It's in the sea. It lays down. It stays together. It flows together, right? It doesn't just like open up and, hey, look, there's a pocket in the ocean. It doesn't happen like that. God works against that normal process, miraculously, to allow them to cross it, right? Now, we see this in many other cases, too, and that becomes a little difficult as you talk about this, but what we're talking about specifically in this case is God works against normal means sometimes to fulfill his will. So, in other words, God uses a normal process, but miraculously intervenes, and Mary is pregnant, right? In this case, the normal process would be for the ocean to be in the filled, right? And God works against the normal process to open it up. Same with the sun, not setting, right? Normal process is there's a day, the earth's rotating, the sun sta- sets at the end of the day, that's it. He works against that normal process and intervenes and stops or causes something to happen that's different, Does that make any sense? You guys with me on that to some extent? You're a little confused. That's okay. Let's look at some scripture. You can see we've got a bunch of it there. And if you want, you can see I'm going to read a big passage here in Exodus 14. Exodus 14, if you wanted to turn to that one. Okay. First, Acts 27, verses 31 and 44. Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. And the rest, some on board and some on broken pieces of the ship, and so it came to pass that they escaped, all safe to land. What is, what is the scene that we're talking about here in Acts? And by the way, this is a footnote that's in the confession. What is the scene that we're talking about in Acts 27, 31, and 44? What happens to the ship? It's destroyed, shipwrecked, caught in a storm. So Paul says to the centurion soldiers, except these abide in the ship, you can't be saved. So what happens? They listen to him, the ship breaks up, and the rest, some on board, some on broken pieces of the ship, all escape safe to land. Everybody made it. Everybody made it. Now, what are we talking about when we talking about that? We're talking about that God uses means to accomplish his will. The storm was normal. The storm was normal, not a supernatural storm. This is part of Creation. Isaiah 55 verses 10:11, "For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish what that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it." Wow. You know, the first verse of those two verses describes natural processes, rain, snow, right? Water's the ground, it doesn't rain and then go back to heaven. Things happen with the water, part of the natural process. But then he says, his word is going to go forth out of his mouth, his mouth, and that is going to not return to him void. It's going to accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish with his word. With his word. That is actually suggesting that God's word is Almost, not quite, almost a natural process. God's word will accomplish what he intends it to accomplish in the way that he intends it to accomplish. It does not have to miraculously intervene every time. Hosea 1.7, But I will have mercy upon the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, by horses, nor by horsemen. Isn't that interesting? I'll have mercy upon the house of Judah, and I won't save them by weapons and soldiers. He's going to save them. He's not going to use the normal means. Romans 4, 19 to 21. And being not weak in faith, he considered it not his own body, now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able to perform. Who is he talking about? Obviously, a little hint there because he's talking about Sarah's womb. Abraham. He's talking about Abraham in this passage. Paul is. And what he says specifically is, when he was a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. He was strong in the faith. So Abraham believed that God was telling the truth, that this would happen. That he would cause something to happen that's different. That there would be a child. Sarah would become pregnant. And we see, of course, we see Abraham doing this. Think about when he's taken Isaac to sacrifice him. Did God miraculously create a Goat in the bush? Or was the goat there, and God planned for it to be there so that it could be sacrificed instead of Isaac? Hmm. Daniel 3.27, And the princes, governors, and captains, and the king's counselors, being gathered together, saw these men, upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was a hair on their head singed, nor were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. Well, this is a shocking, this was a shocking story, wasn't it? This is God working against the natural processes. What would the natural process be that we're talking about here? The natural process of come on, shout it out. What? Fire. Fire. This what are we talking? Do you recognize what this is? You know, the confession doesn't list the whole passage. It just lists the individual verse out of it. What's this passage? Who just came out of the fiery furnace? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They came out of the fire. And notice what it says, that the fire had no power over their body, the hair on their head wasn't singed, their coats weren't changed, and you couldn't even smell fire on them. You know, you can't get close to a campfire and not smell like a campfire. These guys are in the fire, it comes out. This is God working against the natural processes, caused something to happen that was not part of the natural process because of course naturally they would have burned up. Right? They would at least smell like smoke. I mean, <laughs> at least that would happen. Didn't happen. Luke 1:35 and the angel answered and said unto her the holy ghost shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the son of God. Well, and obviously this is a reference to Mary becoming pregnant. God uses the natural process of pregnancy, but he works against the natural process by causing her to become pregnant without a human man. All right, Exodus 14, 16 through 31. And probably you'll recognize this. Just listen to it as it goes to see how the natural processes are worked Over. But lift thou up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh, and upon all his hosts, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these, so that the one came not near the other all night. Don't think about the Ten Commandments movie. Think about what's happening right here. This is unbelievable. The Egyptians cannot attack the Israelites because the spirit of God in the form of a cloud which appears to also have fire is put between the two. Neither one can approach the other. Straggling Israelites cannot go back to the Egyptians. They can't pass through this thing that exists. This would be a miraculous intervention. Yes? See this? Because... God's Spirit comes down and acts as this pillar of fire or of cloud behind the Israelites before the Egyptians. Also, notice that God intervened by hardening the hearts of the Egyptians. Hardens the hearts of the Egyptians, makes them want to get the Israelites. Verse 21. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east. Well, just pause for a second. Look, this is what I'm saying. You, you, you can't look. Anytime a movie is made with a Bible story, understand that it is not because they simply want to pervert the Word of God, but because they cannot fully put in the movie exactly what the Word of God says. And they have to make assumptions and they have to make guesses, and they have to come up with things to try to give the idea of what they read in the Scripture to do it. So if you watch the Ten Commandments movie, classic movie, you know, Charlton Heston, if you watch that movie, in that movie what happens is they see Pharaoh's armies coming, the pillar of fire comes down between the two and stops Pharaoh's armies from getting them, and then suddenly Moses raises his arms, parts the Red Sea, and they're all, oh, man, it's just unbelievable. And then they all go through the Red Sea, right? But this is not what this shows. This shows that the f- pillar of clouds that was leading them, which we never see in the movie, by the way, now goes to the back of them, and it blocks Pharaoh's army from coming forward, and it also provides light at night. They're, and they're there f- till the next day. The children of Israel were not so uh, afraid because they could see Pharaoh's army. They could see God stopping Pharaoh's army. Stopping them. 21. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Pause for a second. How long does it take your yard to dry out after it's rained for a few days? So if, you're, if you have a swamp in your yard, a few of you do, how long would it take for that ground to become dry so that you could put horses and carts and walk across it and get across the other side? God used the natural process of the wind to accelerate the drying process so that they could walk across See what it says? It says, A strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Verse 22, And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. So you can just picture what's happened here that Spirit of God that was apparent in a cloud of fire, that has now apparently lifted. Because now the Egyptians' chariots and soldiers can come through to the sea. And it came to pass that in the morning watch, the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians and took off their chariot wheels that they drave them heavily. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord fighteth for, for them against the Egyptians. What's happening here? They're chasing them. I mean, if you look, what it says is in verse 23 is that they went into the midst of the sea. All of his his, entire army went into the midst of the sea. And then we see in verse 25 that the chariot wheels start breaking off. Remember, this is dry enough ground that the entire nation of Israel has walked across it, which by the way, the Red Sea, if depending on where it was, to walk across it would take quite a long time. This is not like this would be just a half hour there across. This is not the Flint River here. This is gonna take a long time for them to get all the way across the sea. Very possible that they were still in the sea when, chariot's armies began to, when Pharaoh's armies began to come into the sea at the other end. Are you with me on this? We don't know for sure. Very possible that's the case. Verse 26, the Lord said unto Moses, stretch out thine hand over the sea, and the waters may come upon again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled against it, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots, and the horsemen, and all the hosts of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, there remained not so much as one of them. In the Ten Commandments movie, one chariot is saved. Whose is it? Pharaoh. Pharaoh and his chariot men are up on the mountain or on the cliff or they're overlooking and they see this happen. Not according to the scripture. Not one person was left. The entire army destroyed under the water in the midst of the sea. Did God strike them dead? He used the natural process of the ocean that he had intervened and caused the waters to separate and caused the land, the wind to blow, to it to be dry. But he then withdrew. When Moses held his rod out, God withdrew, holding the sea. Moses didn't control it. Moses was obedient to God. God let the ocean go, destroyed Pharaoh's army, the Egyptians. But the children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And the Israel saw the great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So it's not like this thing happened and the Egyptians just disappeared. Natural process happened. What's the natural process when there's a shipwreck, a plane crash, or whatever in the ocean? Bodies. Bodies float. This verse actually says right here. Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. They saw it. They knew what happened. They knew that the Egyptians did not escape back out the other end. Which would have been too far for them to see, by the way. No. They knew. They were dead. They were dead. This is God intervening in creation and causing things to happen and withholding sometimes the natural order so that His will can be accomplished and other times using that natural order of creation to accomplish His will. Let's close in a word of prayer.